Listener Production. I first came across Yale Stone, like most of Australia and indeed the world, as Lorna Morello on the hugely popular Netflix original Orange is the New Black. The show is set in a women's prison and Yael plays a sweet, soft-hearted, hyper-feminine, Boston-accented inmate. Oh, your first time in prison. Yeah. It's not so bad. Everyone's okay. After Orange is the New Black ended, Yael made international headlines when she alleged that actor Jeffrey Rush had behaved inappropriately towards her during the production of The Diary of a Madman in 2010. The mystery woman dubbed Witness X in the Jeffrey Rush defamation case has been revealed as Hollywood actress Yael Stone. Jeffrey Rush versus The Daily Telegraph. Today, the Oscar-winning actor won in the courtroom. In 2019, when she and I last spoke, Yael was back home in Australia expecting the birth of her daughter. The summer bushfires that would close out that year prompted her to take a new path, setting acting to the side and pursuing advocacy and action to prevent dangerous climate change. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. In a moment, Bron is jumping into the chair and she and I will be bringing you The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, listen and read this weekend. And just a heads up before you listen in to myself and Yale Stone that this conversation does include discussion of sexual harassment and it might be a little upsetting for some listeners. So proceed with caution. Yale Stone, welcome to the weekend briefing. Now, the last time you and I were together in a physical room, you were very, very pregnant. Oh yeah. Oh, that'll be. How's motherhood? <laughs> Turns out it's a real ass kicker. Hey. <laughs> what was it like for you parenting a really young child during the pandemic? Completely transformative and really hard work. We did get one of those kids that doesn't sleep. I wish we'd be more specific on the order form about that, but yeah, just transformative in the most incredibly wonderful ways. Having our daughter has has really reprioritized my life, and um, like yes, of course, it's not as easy to. It, it, it feels like there's zero hours in the day, and yet somehow the ambition for different kinds of things is much greater. The vision for what I'd like to hand over to her is much clearer, and so somehow even with the less hours in the day there's more getting done. There's more built up around her, um, hopefully, to say, hey, this is what we're making for you. This is the world we want to see for you. So it's really motivating. How did you think about socialisation and tricky questions like that when you were spending so much time alone at home, right? It was a particular time and I'll be perfectly honest, probably for the benefit of anyone else out there, because it wasn't pretty. I was just about to go back into working. I thought, okay, cool, I'm back. You know, this is my kind of re-emergence after an almost two-year period of doing that really solid motherhood thing. And then we went straight back in, inside, and locked the door. (laughs) 
And um, my partner is Jack Manning Bancroft. He runs an organisation called AIM and AIM works really specifically in, you know, university campuses and at schools with face-to-face interaction. So Jack had a massive challenge in terms of reimagining how AIM could be in the world and, and how they could survive and operate and continue to do really good stuff, which meant he needed to go down into the basement and work really long, hard hours. And so Pemau and I just had this very wild kind of like circulation around our house where Jack was in the basement. My sister and her partner moved into the house with us. He's a psychologist who works with newly returned refugees. My sister is a musician and was doing online singing and music lessons. So we would kind of like circulate around the house amongst all these people doing different things. And I would, you know, try and find more play and more craft and more games. I went bonkers and I got head to toe eczema and I was incredibly anxious and it was a really intense mothering challenge, I have to say, yeah. The last two years have been so difficult for you, Yale, but for all of us, right? But I think in your case, possibly particularly difficult given that almost immediately before the pandemic, you were involved in the defamation case brought by Jeffrey Rush against the Daily Telegraph. Yael Stone shot to fame in a hit US TV series. And we can now reveal she is witness X in Geoffrey Rush's defamation case. The judge ruled she couldn't give evidence at his trial, but last year she spoke out anyway. You were revealed to be witness X in that court battle. What was that like for you? For me, the the really intense period was was well before that when our daughter was just before yeah our daughter was about five months old when I had to make some pretty big decisions about whether or not I would choose to be involved that's a really intense time when you're just working out how to how to mother and I was also over in the states I was completing my my work there with Orange is the New Black and it felt both very far away and very close to to home the emotional demands of one thing, and I, I, I guess there's a whole other logistic and legal implication that was far beyond anything I had experienced, um, and that that was incredibly stressful. Choosing, making a choice, um, and the choice would remain invisible if it was a no, and it would be incredibly visible if it was a yes. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's one thing to have a moral decision that's on the table that everybody will know about either way. But, you know, I think in a scenario like that, which is sort of in some ways doomed to fail if you choose to be part of it, everyone knows that. But if you choose not to be part of it, no one will know. Only people very, very close to you will know. The preferences are stacked toward the no. And I get the impression you're quite a private person. Is that fair? I think a lot of people would argue otherwise. Um, Yeah, I guess because I have been very vocal about my place in the world and what I would like to see for the future. Um, So I think a lot of people would say, no, she's out there. She's talking a lot. She's got a big mouth, basically. And people don't like to hear from from regular kind of folks from other industries. Um, Particularly actors are, 
you know, toxic to for, for opinions. And I understand that. And then there's there's also this competing reality, which is we're all citizens and we all play a part in building the future we want to see. And if we all remain afraid and silent because we have to stay in our boxes and forget our, our role as citizens, then there's a great vacuum there. A citizenry role is very important to me and I think it's very powerful and beautiful and, you know, it's heightened at a time when we're coming towards an election and and thinking about what kind of future we want to see. So is it fair to say that you decided to be public around your allegations and your involvement in the court case partly because there was a is duty too big a word? Like there was a role as a citizen and for others to play there. Was that part of what weighed into your decision-making? Yeah, absolutely. It's not pleasant. Really uncomfortable stuff to talk about publicly. It also involves people who are my friends or were my friends and are definitively no longer. And that's incredibly painful and it will always be incredibly painful. But there was a vacuum a vacuum of accuracy and a vacuum of voices. If I could have chosen to avoid all of that and felt safe that the right outcome would happen, you know, of course I wouldn't have done it. It was really horrible and hard for so many reasons. And yet that guarantee is never there that the right outcome will prevail. And I think a lot of people would argue that the right outcome didn't prevail some people would argue that the right outcome did prevail. It's very complicated, but I I know the only thing you can kind of take responsibility for are those decisions that you make in the muck and the mire. And, um, yeah, you know, it's still a very painful decision to kind of think on and a very painful time for so many people involved on all sides of that debate and that legal uh, involvement. Very painful and very hard to see four years on. It's still very hard to see where the lines are. You went to Newtown High School of the Performing Arts and then you went on to NIDA. What sort of career did you envisage for yourself during those years of study? Because we know the creative arts is... I mean, it's a profession that involves an incredible amount of work ethic, an incredible amount of talent and raw skill and an incredible amount of luck, right? There are going to be students who are brilliant who don't find success and students who are brilliant who do. How did you sort of think about what your career would look like beyond study during the years you were doing it? Well, funnily enough, Jamila, I never actually thought I would be an actor professionally as a grown-up. I think I thought it was this really enriching, beautiful process that I was really nourished by and that I kept following. But I don't think I ever thought, oh, this will be my job. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so when you talk about luck, I have been very, very lucky. And along the way, I felt that there were other opportunities or other possibilities, but acting often came and, and drew me back in. And I guess now I'm, you know, approaching, I'm in my late thirties. I'm that change of priorities that I talked about with having a child and, and wanting a future 
that has meant I've been able to sort of feel into those different spaces that were always places of real curiosity and possibility for me that kind of come beyond acting or outside of acting or come from those experiences within acting. But having the confidence to do that has taken a while. And, you know, you you talked about what it is to talk publicly and be unpopular and say unpopular things publicly. And uh, in a way, those experiences in 2018 gave me a vision of what it is to, to do something unexpected to be unpopular, to try something else. And um, I discovered I, it, I I was alive on the other side of it. And that feeling of, okay, well, it is, it is one life that you get. And, you know, you have these opportunities to reach a little further beyond what you think is possible. And I think it's probably that motivation or that, that little window of possibility that's meant I'm now reaching into different spaces like working in in climate change solution and and talking more about that and trying to be be bold as a communicator about that and and, um, extend on those skills of empathy and communication and hard work and a kind of dogged pursuit and put them in other places alongside acting. Yeah. I also think that as girls, as women, we tend to be socialised to make everyone else around us comfortable to be likable, right? And to be liked. And we're taught that that's the most important thing you could be is liked by others. And so finding that courage to go to a place where you know that to do the right thing, to push for what you want to will necessarily mean there are people who respond negatively, I think is particularly hard. Yeah, I think you're right. I think film and television has a lot of negative things to answer for, but there are also some amazing hero stories out there of, of people standing up in in ways that are not kind of popular or easy. You know, that, that can be really uplifting and there are amazing historical examples of that to look to. But, yeah, I think you're right on the ground, like in a personal day-to-day moment, you do have to kind of unpack that education of like be nice be likable be sweet and also I'm really short (laughs) that's another (laughs) part that's a weird I'm a really short person and um that nice thing is weirdly amplified because people put on this this like you're a pixie you're you're a little doll you're a little petite little yeah non aggressive um kind of malleable thing that I can pick up like literally pick up and move but only now like in the last 10 years I've been like hey can you not pick me up <laughs> I'm actually a grown-up um I'm always referred to as a girl on set the girls of the East and um it takes a little bit of awkward courage to say would you mind referring to me as a woman um or by my name I have this name that you are welcome to use yes and also like confront any ex- some expectations that come around being likable and being cute and affable all the time and kind of meeting that head on and, and breaking that stuff down in a way that's also warm and and here I go and friendly um and with that has empathy but but not apologizing for the fact that oh we might differ but we can still talk. Like just because I'm not the fairy pixie that you want me to be 
doesn't mean I'm not your mate, you know? Look, there'll be a bunch of people who are listening right now saying, Jamila, get to Orange is the New Black, please. Why are you messing around with other stuff? Because you were such a beloved character on that show. And I remember reacting with surprise when I learned that the woman playing Lorna Morello was Australian and then doing that very parochial Australian thing and feeling very proud and like we owned you. Tell me about how that sweetness and the expectation of sweetness helped you to play that character and find that character of this woman trying to maintain the prettiness of life, I suppose, in the really difficult space of a, of a women's prison, which is anything but. Yeah, that's really interesting. I can officially say no one's ever asked me that. <laughs> and a lot of people ask me a lot of things about Orange and the New Black. Of course they do. <laughs> I think that's, yeah, really perceptive. I, I do think that Lorna enjoyed very much the her fantasy of femininity and romance and the promise of that um you know and I talked about Hollywood and TV having a lot to answer for probably Lorna invested a lot in a vision that was created by you know some Hollywood execs (laughs) but um but also that life is important that fantasy life and Lorna gave me this amazing lesson, which was about keeping, not just not letting fantasy and reality get too far apart. I kind of learned about cognitive dissonance towards the end of my time on Orange as I was starting to study climate and, you know, that space between our beliefs and our actions and how the greater that space is, the kind of larger our cognitive dissonance is, And the more ill we're likely to feel if we have an enormous gap between our value and our actions. And um, that was a huge moment. And I I do think that comes as a gift from Lorna because she was a character or is a character that um, has a massive gulf between reality and fantasy, values and behaviour and um, and. We saw it over seven seasons kind of eat her alive. You know how hard this is for me, right? Being in here, not able to hold my baby. And those pictures, they're all I have. It's not Sterling. It's someone else's baby. Could you please stop saying that? Your baby is dead, Lorna. If you can't accept that, then maybe you should get some help. You need help. How do you think about that experience of being connected to that show and being part of something that really was groundbreaking. We are all consuming, particularly with the pandemic, so much television now and we're living in this golden era of TV where there's such good quality stuff coming all the time that it's almost easy to forget some of the brilliant stuff that uh, came at the beginning, I think, of that era. And Orange is the New Black broke down so many barriers, I think, when it came to the representation of women on screen, when you reflect on that part of your career, how do you think about it now? I'm just so glad it happened, you know. It's like I'm glad that, you know, when I lost my virginity it wasn't bad, you know. I'm just so glad it's locked in stone and nothing can change that. Um, It was magic and I don't know what the heck I've done in my life to have earned a ticket on that ride, but it was such a beautiful ride and 
it was such a privilege to be inside of it. The people who were involved in making it were all extraordinary people across the board, in front of the camera and behind the camera. It was just kind of unheard of. And, you know, people work on shows for a long time and it can be hard. Seven years is a long time. But in seven years, we didn't implode. We just kept connecting with each other and these characters and the audience deeper and deeper. And it was just beautiful. It was just beautiful. I mean, I guess there is that one thing where you're like, oh, that'll probably never happen again. No. <laughs> and we kind of have to move on when we have those like extraordinary milestone experiences. I'm, I'm really lucky that I've got lots of love in my life that the drop off from that wasn't so difficult. Yeah. You know, I think it would be really hard to go from feeling so plugged in um, and then, and then sort of having that family and that world move away. And, and acting can be like that. You know, you do these jobs, mainly they last for like three months maximum, not seven years, but you do them and you just fall in love with everyone. You have a really connected time and there's lots of sharing and, and, and it's an incredible challenge. So you sort of have this fast track to friend, friendship most of the time. And then you say goodbye. It can be quite a shock. I remember I had my first acting job professional job when I was 12 years old and the drop-off was so immense. You're sort of in this world and it's everything. It's amazing. It's so fun. You're on a mission and then it just disappears. And I just did a job with a 13-year-old and um, it was an amazing job and she was she's the lead. Her name's Julia Savage and it's uh, for an incredible film called Blaze made by Del Catherine Barton and she was doing a brilliant job. And I just kept wanting to make, wanting to kind of put a crash mat there for yeah. her at the end. Because the way that you give and you share and you connect with everybody, it just goes from one day to the next. And it takes practice to be able to kind of uh, move on. You've moved on in part to an, what is essentially a new career for you, right? You're working in the in the climate space and you founded a new organisation called High Neighbour. Can you tell us about it? Yeah. Well, I feel like I should probably wind it back just a tiny bit and, um, yeah, and say in terms of this biography of Orange and, and, and acting that in 2019 when the fires happened, our plan as a family was to go back to the States and I was going to keep pursuing my, my work as an actor. And then the fires happened and I just broke. I just had a total anxiety existential crisis. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. And it suddenly felt so wrong to be flying away. And to be flying back and forth and to have a home in two countries and to be doing all this advocacy work in the States when our country is facing the brunt of this stuff. We're on the front line, right? Yeah, we're on the front lines and it felt wrong to leave the front lines. And it felt wrong for a number of reasons because this is our home first and foremost, but also because I was sort of on Instagram going, where's the leadership? Where's the accountability? 
And then I look to myself, I'm like, well, where's your leadership? Where's your accountability? What are you doing? And the reality is what I'm doing is pursuing my very selfish goals and, you know, clocking up miles back and forth and and really wanting somebody else to solve the problem. But what does it mean if I try in my way to address the problem? And the high neighbour journey started from there. It started also from that decision to give up our green card, to stay in Australia. I started studying at the University of Wollongong, studying sustainable communities and learning more about the region that that we live in and realising that there were so many opportunities in this place which we're known as the Coal Coast and we make steel and we dig coal and we ship it out through Port Kembla and it's a real nexus point because also we're facing climate challenges, we're facing fires and yet people need good jobs that they've you know, inherited through generations. And suddenly we're saying, hey, by the way, those jobs that you rely on to feed your family, we don't like those jobs anymore. Those are bad jobs. And we've made people who work on the ground feel like they are the problem. When in fact their job is a a symptom of, of what needs to change, but they're not the problem. They're actually the potential solution. And I I felt really heartbroken at the way that the climate wars had played out in terms of workers and our area particularly because we've got this like separation between environmentalists and people who work in coal and steel when really closing down that divide creates the opportunity for amazing solutions. What has developed over that time is a really localised plan that talks to Darrell country, to the Illawarra, to the Coal Coast, that I've spoken to so many different kinds of people and mainly local people and some experts about, okay, well, what are the perspectives on this challenge? And really we built this super practical plan that basically what we do is we put solar on commercial rooftops The community comes together to provide the loan for that rooftop. So where a business wants to become sustainable, they want to become net zero, but they can't afford it because solar on their enormous commercial rooftop might be expensive. We go, hey, we'll give you a loan. And then as you pay that loan back, we'll channel those funds directly into our scholarship fund and we make scholarships available to local people who want to train in renewables. That's not um, necessarily in solar, we're talking about emerging technologies like hydrogen, like offshore wind. And those are the actual plans that are in place for our region. So we're saying, hey, if there is to be a renewable revolution that is on the cards as far as state government is concerned, we've got to make sure that local people are included in that as well. And that means training or retraining. It also means really understanding that those people have earned that position. Folks who've worked in coal and steel have been powering and building our our nation's wealth for a long time. We can't just abandon those folks and their families because it's no longer convenient. 
What an incredible, uh, I'm just, sorry, I'm slightly, I knew you were working in this space, but the extent of the ingenuity of what you were doing and how deeply connected it is to community, but also how practical the work is, has totally blown me away. Yeah. Oh, thank you. You know, that means a lot to me because I think for you to, to, to focus on the practicality, so many of us know we want change. We know we need to to decarbonize and we know we need to transition, but it's been a real lack of practical steps. So High Neighbor is trying to provide a scheme, a really practical three-step kind of program that says, here's how we do it. Here's how we look to making sure our community stays relevant and stays connected and can continue to be a region that's powering the nation. Yael, it is election day. It is a big day for our country. Yeah. A lot of our listeners are going to be heading to the polls after they listen to the weekend briefing. What do you want them to have at the forefront of their minds when they go and cast their vote? I'm talking to you from the Smart Energy Council's conference and I I just chaired a session about the future. And Adam Bant was speaking, Chris Bowen was speaking, amongst a number of other really wonderful thinkers like Ben Oquist and Annika Molesworth, people who are really focused on the future. There is a kind of confounding negative view, which is Australia is a dinosaur. I think we got awarded the fossil the biggest fossil at at COP26, you know, we are laughably behind. But also the message I get from from folks like that and also from people like Saul Griffiths is that if we move, we can very quickly make up that ground. We have this small window. We've got to take it. And the acceleration is truly possible and right at our fingertips. As you so rightly point out, we can't afford that the stagnation of the past. It is crucial that we embrace the opportunities that are there. And we are ripe with opportunities. You know, we have the greatest ability here in Australia with our natural resources to move on this and to move big. And we can be leaders. And in so many ways, we already are. I had a real change of perspective. It, it seems small, but I went to a conference with Groundswell, who are a really wonderful group who aggregate donations for climate change. And they also service education for people wanting to know more. And I went and I had a very confronting three days of learning with them. I came away realising that in my heart, there is a place in my heart that where I've been thinking, well, at least I, I'll be able to say I tried. I think that that duty to tell our kids and our grandchildren, I feel that, that personal duty, like I feel like one day I'm going to be asked, well, what did you do? Yeah, and I realised that was a bit of a, that was holding me back because the message in my brain needs to shift. It needs to shift from at least I can say I tried to we're going to win this, we're going to do this. It has to be real. It can't just be because I want to just be okay with myself when I go to sleep at night. 
it has to be for real. You know, the more skin in the game that I've put, the less anxiety I feel because, yes, I am working hard. And the more skin in the game I put, the greater likelihood it it feels, you know, because if someone like me, like a stupid actor, can do this, can try in this way and hopefully, hopefully do some active solutions-based work locally, then friggin' hell, there's a hell of a lot of people way smarter than me, you know, and that gives me hope. I see like incredible local unexpected change makers coming out all over Australia and I think how wonderful that the solution is most likely going to come from like deeply unexpected places. How wonderful, like that's a change. You are an absolute delight, Yael. I am going to put on the record my objection to the stupid actor characterization. but <laughs> thank you for your work on screen, on stage, and now in the climate space. We so appreciate it. And I love that you were my guest on the weekend briefing. Thanks for being here. Thank you so, so much for having me. It's just a delight to be with you and to follow your work and to have met you all those years ago. And you sent me your book. I don't know if you remember, but your motherhood book, and it arrived so perfectly. And, um, you know, I've followed your journey on social media and it's it's moved me and sometimes saddened me to, to see the challenges that you faced with your health. But it's incredibly inspiring to see what you've done with that, to share the journey and, and to just keep winning in the way that you do. It's, it's just amazing. So thank you. That's it for my conversation with Yael Stone. If you need to, please do not hesitate to call 1-800-RESPECT, who are the national 24-hour hotline who can help survivors of sexual assault and sexual harassment. If you're interested in Yael's incredible new organisation, Hi Neighbour, then you can also find them on the interwebs. And I highly recommend that you do. Don't go away. Bron is coming in next and we have got the weekend list. It is weekend list time. Bron is here and this weekend... This special federal election weekend, friends, we don't have a whole list of creative recommendations for you. We have just one recommendation, don't we, Bron? What is it? It is, of course, to get yourself down, go vote, and while you're waiting in line, which can sometimes be long, get yourself a democracy sausage. That's right. It is your chance to have your voice heard in who runs this country. Also, you get fined if you don't go, folks, so make sure you're voting. Have a say on the kinds of policies that you want put in place to see this country into the next three years as we move out of the pandemic. Don't forget to go to your local primary school, to your local church hall, wherever there is a voting booth. As Bron says, there will be democracy sausages available. If you Google democracy sausage, you will find a wonderful website that tells you which polling booths have sausages and which do not, which is important. A bunch of them have bake sales as well. I'm off this morning to bake some cookies for my local primary school. Good luck to everyone who is involved in campaigning in this election. And remember how exciting and how special it is for all of us that we live in a country where we get to have a say in who governs us. 
that's it for today's episode of the Weekend Briefing. Thank you for being with us. If you want to hear more from the briefing, then you should subscribe to the Listener app, follow us wherever you get your podcasts, throw us a rating and a review while you're there. We'll be back bright and early Monday morning, potentially with a new government, when Tom and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.